it's time for another episode of Profiles in the Blues on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. I'm Ray Coop. I'm Marcus Goldman. And this time, buddy, we're going to talk about two people who aren't very well known in the history of the blues. Memphis Minnie and Blind Lemon Jefferson, both credited by a lot of people for being at the root of the tree they fell from. Yeah, the more that we have both dug into their histories, and there's not a lot of information about either of them. They were born in the late 1800s, and records then, especially in rural America, weren't kept very well. So it's really hard to trace those roots. I think uh, we can paint a pretty good picture on their history with the information that we have. A lot of you will be learning as we go, as we have in our research to bring you this Profiles in the Blues. And as always, Marcus, ladies come first. So let's dig in and talk about the great Memphis Minnie. Like most people who've heard of her at all, I always just associate her with the song When the Levee Breaks, of course, right? That's how I first heard of Memphis Minnie, yep. I think it's like 90% of the people. However, after spending time listening to a lot of her sides, that's what they used to call them, all her records, sweet Jesus, if Bessie was the Empress of the Blues, Minnie was the doggone queen. It's just so incredible how much energy, talent, and yes, well-recorded songs that she had, that she made. And that's something else that not everybody else was doing. Making songs, writing songs. Wants to see my chauffeur. Wants to see my chauffeur. I want him to drive me. I want him to drive me downtown. Says he drives so easy. I can't turn him down. Like so many stories that we tell when we talk about the blues a hundred years ago, Marcus. Oh, you better watch it because she's tricky. It starts in Mississippi. Lizzie Douglas was born June 1897. She sometimes says she was born in Algiers, Louisiana, but census and social security records that we have say she was born in Mississippi in the very rural east central tunica county and her family were sharecroppers she didn't like her name lizzie she changed it to kid and then her family moves to walls mississippi which is not far from memphis where she'll end up when she's a little kid as well so she's getting closer to where she's going to be when she starts to make her name and her name changes from kid douglas to memphis minnie She started playing on the streets in Memphis as a teenager and even engaged in a little bit of sex work to make money at that time because 
those two tended to be tied together in some aspects, busking and sex work for some reason at that time period were uh, connected. And acceptable. Well, hanging around the sidewalk, she meets some interesting characters and it leads her to take a tour of the South with the Ringling Brothers Circus. Hey, that's a pretty cool little gig. And that was very common for musicians to do at that time, especially in the earlier days of their career. It gave them a chance to play all over the place and build a base. By the time she got done her run, the whole scene on Beale Street had grown. It was thriving with the blues on every corner. All the places, the sex shops too, were all working overtime. (laughs) She had already had lost her first husband, Casey Bill Weldon. And there on Beale Street, she began performing with Joe McCoy, her second husband, right around 1929. And that's actually when... A Columbia Records talent scout heard them playing for tips in a Beale Street barbershop and then convinced them to go to New York City to do some recording. And he's the one who gave them the nicknames Kansas Joe and Memphis Minnie. He was playing Star Maker, right? Totally. And it was very common for label people in those days to not only write songs for people, but to name them or give them that catchy name that will grab people's attention stay with me kid i'm gonna help you i'm gonna make you a star (laughs) so over the next couple of years her and kansas joe they're releasing records for columbia and then they end up releasing bumblebee one of her most famous songs on vocalion which they'd already recorded for columbia but hadn't been released yet i don't know how the hell she got away or did that i saw a lot of stuff like that where multiple recordings were being released all the time Through it all, Minnie became one of the best entrepreneurs at that stage of the game in entertainment, period. And she and McCoy continued to record for Vocalion into 1934 when they did a few sides for Decca Records. There's a label we all know, right? <laughs> Many old school music lovers are very familiar with Decca Records, yeah. and it's got a rich history in the early days of music some great bands. Joe and Minnie do their last session together for Decca in September and are divorced in 1935. Now, I wanted to tell you, I've been looking into who that Columbia A&R person was, and I have done some digging. I cannot discover their identity, so that's one of those things that I'm looking into. Even the research team has been stumped so far, Marcus. I have faith in the research team. We will be getting that name in a Bent News update. Well, Memphis Minnie, she was a hell of a guitarist. She was a hell of a woman. She was a hell of a songwriter. She could sing better than almost anybody out there. When he got me an alley, called me a name. What I put on him was a crying shame. Down in this alley. Down in this alley. Down in this alley. Well, I got my Benny fixed all right. 
And she was tough as nails, too, dude. If she didn't like what you were doing, she always had a knife or a gun on her. If you tried to, like, play dirty with her or swindle her, that knife came out and she was at your throat. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Real quick, supposedly had lightning fast reflexes, could hit really hard. She also chewed tobacco, smoked cigars, a no messing around human being. Central to her story, central to her role in the blues, when Memphis Minnie moved to Chicago in the mid 30s, it really changed everything going on there. Absolutely everything for her. I live in a cabin way down by the riverside. Just me, myself, one old mother child. Yeah, right off the bat, she recorded four sides for Bluebird Records and then went right back to the Vocalion label. She was recording for everybody. And you mentioned Bluebird, which I always thought of as primarily a 1950s era label. But this imprint was doing great things with records back into the 30s and the 20s, as far as I can tell. And some of those tunes she recorded in Chicago were with her ex 
first husband, Casey Bill Weldon, who was supposed to be a badass guitar player. And it was in Chicago that she got to know people like Big Bill Brunzi. Now, they used to do the equivalent to a throwdown, where instead of trading rhymes, they would trade songs. And she and Brunzi got into it with the prize being a bottle of whiskey and a bottle of gin. And each singer would sing a couple songs. They'd go back and forth. I got the key to the highway. And I'm built out and bound to go. I'm gonna leave there running Cause walking is most too slow And she nailed it down with the me and my chauffeur blues and looking the world over. I'm just having my fun Ooh, me, my righteous man I told my daddy to not to get high We gonna take a plant for a long songs were so strong even somebody as amazing as Brunzi couldn't overcome her couldn't defeat her she could play guitar like nobody's business if you listen to her older records she's the one playing lead guitar and Lawler's or Kansas Joe is playing the rhythm behind her and she's the one shredding you mentioned Lawler husband number three coming into the picture after she's been in Chicago uh, he's called little son Joe Ernest Lawlers, and he became her new musical partner, and they got hitched, and she changed her name officially to Minnie Lawlers for a while. And one of the characters she met there was Lester Frank Melrose. He was from Illinois, uh, tried out for the White Sox and Fed when he was a kid, and they got into producing records and worked with all different labels and people, and all the people that crossed his path are a lot of the people that are part of the overall story. Uh, we mentioned Roosevelt Sykes a couple times on the podcast, Big Joe Williams and Lonnie Johnson. These are all people who were all contemporaries. Booker White, Jack Dupree, the champion, right? Absolutely. All working together right there together in one beautiful blues neighborhood. Oh, yeah. And I'm sure the stories that nobody's heard are even wilder because there's still so much to learn about those early days with Memphis Minnie and the women that were involved in the blues that weren't treated the same as the men, even though they could play with the best of them. Maybe a lot of them, but Memphis Minnie, she was one of the first people to put her foot down. And maybe that's why she looked up to Ma Rainey so much. 
Ma, a figure, if you've seen the movie, Viola Davis earned every award that you got for playing Ma. She was the original, I'm not taking no shit from nobody kind of lady. I think it about Ma Rainey. What a way could Ma Rainey be? She and a lot of the other women saw how Ma was treated better after she stood up to the nonsense. And that led to something happening there. And that's pretty cool, too. Oh, man. So much cool music. So much stuff gets me going. Her music is so damn cool. And the way musicians have either covered her music or adapted her music or reimagined her music into different songs is pretty incredible and the more that i've dug in since we decided we were gonna do memphis mini and blind lemon jefferson i've found some incredible incredible covers and versions of her songs by some pretty well-known musicians during the quarter century or so that she lived in chicago many recorded for a bunch of labels we've been talking about a lot of different players most notably though sunny land slim and Little Walter, who also worked with Muddy Waters. And it's worth mentioning that Muddy really looked up to her when he was a kid. You know, one can imagine a young Jimmy Page hearing her sound and being transfixed. Or Laverne Baker hearing her Aunt Minnie singing in the kitchen with her folks. Or Bonnie Raitt, maybe, growing up around her music, having been raised in a music and arts family. Or a young Rory Block hearing her and being changed for life. This is what Memphis Minnie has meant to the contemporary sound of the blues. She didn't adapt to the way everybody was changing like some of the other musicians like Muddy Waters. And while she remained a major influence, she faded more and more out of the public eye as we went into the late 40s and 50s. And then in 1960, after she had her stroke, she stopped performing completely. Right, right. And as she went past her prime and then had the stroke, you look back and you look at the amazing list of songs, of a legacy, of recording, 
that she left for people to study. All those people I mentioned and so, so many more have fallen for Memphis Mini. Her songwriting was exceptional. Her lyrics were sharp, clever, funny. They were heavy when they needed to be. They painted a picture and you saw that picture, how you wanted to see it. But when she sang to you, you saw the story she was telling. Listen to Black Cat Blues. It's one of those that uh, you'll get the picture right away. And there's a little bit of a clever dirty in there, too. And she knew how to be dirty with the best of the boys. Doing the research into Memphis Minnie, I found so many people who had covered her music. And the song Baby Please Set a Date, for example, Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac recorded it in the 60s, but it wasn't released until 1995. George Thorogood and the Delaware Destroyers recorded it in 1978. Elvin Bishop did Pig Feet on a Line. And Muddy Waters does a version of What's the Matter with the Mill called Can't Get No Grindin'. Um, me and my chauffeur blues, so many people covered it. You mentioned Jefferson Airplane, and they uh, paid no royalties for their cover of it. Nina Simone covered it the year before in under the title Chauffeur. Maria Moldauer, who's famous for Midnight at the Oasis, has done so much music all over the spectrum because of her incredible voice. Did right. me and my chauffeur blues in 1969 with her husband. Big Mama Thornton did Me and My Chauffeur as well in 1965, and Lucinda Williams did it in 79. Won't you be my chauffeur? Won't you be my chauffeur? I want you to ride me. I want you to ride me. Ride me downtown. You can ride so couple other songs you know we talked about when the levee breaks led zeppelin recorded it famously in 1971 as they reimagined her version dread zeppelin did it in 91 mojo nixon did it in 93 great white did it in 1999 a perfect circle did it in 2004 you see her influence far and wide no matter what type of music it is it all fits under the rock and roll tree and it all goes back to people like Memphis Minnie. Unlike some heroes of the blues, you don't have to wonder where Memphis Minnie is. She has been for a long time where she spent a lot of her youth buried in Walls DeSoto County, in Mississippi, at the New Hope Baptist Church Cemetery. And of course, her headstone was paid for by Bonnie Raitt back in 1996 with a bunch of family in attendance the dedication to mark her spot. And I'm looking at a picture of it now, and it's a pretty big field with not a lot of headstones that say, hey, make sure you come and visit Lizzie Kid Douglas. It says, yeah, Lizzie Kid Douglas Lawler's on there. If you haven't gotten the itch yet from us talking about Memphis Mini, I don't know what we can do other than to tell you to go to your music service and type in her name and enjoy the music. It's beautiful stuff. And you'll probably hear her influence in bands and songs you know while you're listening to her music. Absolutely. Well, after our chat about Memphis Mini, I want to go to a saloon. How about a brewery? How about Crooked Eye for a brew? If they got a spittoon from a chaw. <laughs> Back with Profiles in the Blues. Blind, Lemon, Jefferson, 
next on the imbalanced history of rock and roll. It's always great to stop here in the middle of the Imbalanced History podcast and have a little pint of Crooked Eye in the heart of Hapro, pouring the cure for what ails you since 2014. But that doesn't say much about what they are and what they do. Crooked Eye is one of those brew pubs that is really tight within the community. And you really get a warm, friendly vibe when you walk in there. They've always got music. There's food now because of the Salty Vets barbecue, and they keep bringing out new brews on a regular basis as well as the old standbys. The winter brews are on the board. Go in and have one and check out some of that Salty Vets barbecue as well. And the entertainment at Crooked Eye, it's always changing, so follow them on Facebook and Twitter. Grab some friends, grab a date, head on over to Crooked Eye for some lovely beers and wonderful food and great atmosphere. In the heart of Hatboro, pouring the cure for what ails you. They are Crooked Eye Brewery, and we thank them for their support of the Imbalance Podcast for about a million years now. Here in the wintertime, you still need a great sock because you're going to find a way to work out. Like when it got warm the other day and you told me you were going for a ride. You know, you got to have great socks. And since they started sponsoring our podcast last year, I know when you hit the road, you've got a pair of bold foot socks on those feet. I do. I love my bold foot socks, whether I'm riding outdoors or spinning on a spin bike. They wick the sweat off my feet so I don't get that mushy, yucky, swampy foot feel after doing something athletic. And when it's 40, 50 degrees and the wind can drop the temperature down another 10, having a sock like Boldfoot on to keep your foot a little warmer makes a big difference when you ride. Sometimes when I wake up in the morning, I can hear Marisa working out downstairs and I know that she's got her bald foots working overtime when she's working out with Jillian, you know? Definitely. Whether you're working out or going for a ride, or if you're an aggressive walker, you got to check out boldfoot.com. You can pick your design. They have so many to choose from, and a portion of all sock sales go directly to veterans' charities. And, of course, all socks are made in the USA. Veteran-owned, American-sewn. It's Boldfoot Socks. Thanks for the support, gang. Ray and Marcus back on the imbalance history of rock and roll. It's Profiles in the Blues. We've had a nice discussion about Memphis Mini. And I want to talk to you, Marcus, about a man who I thought had a made-up name like so many bluesmen do. Lemon, Henry, Jefferson, better known as Blind Lemon Jefferson. Lemon's his real fucking name. I didn't know that. All these years, and he never realized it was his real first name. Well, a baby Yeah, what a wild first name. Uh, youngest of seven or eight kids, family of sharecroppers in Texas. Mm-hmm. Hardworking folks. Yep. And he was born either fully blind or partially blind. Nobody's really sure. 
And yeah, we're talking about a time in history where records were sketchy in rural areas everywhere. Everywhere. And he was born in the 1893-1894 timeline range from what we have. And that's where they've been able to narrow it down to at best. So rural records, very scant. The funny thing I learned was that even though he was blind, he had to register for the draft. And his draft registration showed his birth date as October 26th, 1894, and uh, that he had been blind since birth. So we'll go with that because it's the only real straight line that we have. But there's other versions of the story, right? Like any legend. There are multiple stories to the story. Lemon began playing at parties, picnics, friends' houses. I'm broke and ain't got a dime. I'm broke and I ain't got a dime. I'm broke and ain't got a dime. Everybody starting to get a reputation around town is pretty good and like a lot of people he'd play on the street a lot of folks see a good man playing that well they wanted to hang for a while make some money and in one of his many visits to dallas that's where he meets his fellow legend really mm-hmm. let belly mr huddy ledbetter my girl my girl don't lie to me before we get too much further along, let's talk about the Deep Elm neighborhood. Well, that's what it was called when Ledbetter and Jefferson met there, right? A lot of people pronounced it Elm, and we're not really sure if that was because of the accent. And the drawl, maybe, in the South, Elam, because in Texas, people move very slowly at their own pace. And back then, they didn't have cars or anything like that, so they probably moved just a little bit slower. (laughs) But yeah, it evolved from Elm to Deep Elm to Deep Elm. One of the most famous musical neighborhoods in Texas. Was that the neighborhood that gave birth to the Texas blues officially? Officially or not, a lot of it was happening there. And a lot of it was happening because of a guy named Blind Lemon. He became a sensation in his isolation. He got pretty good. But the problem he had was hooking up with people to make great sounding records like Memphis Minnie did when we talked about the first half of this episode, right? Mm-hmm. His success at Paramount Records is unheralded at this point for a black entertainer in the country. He made all kinds of money. They gave him a car as compensation at one point because they were doing so well. And he could afford to have a man. I wouldn't call Thibodeau Walker his chauffeur, but 
he helped them a lot and helped them around. And in return, as part of his pay, he taught T-Bone Walker how to play that guitar. I can only imagine as a young kid learning guitar from this guy as you're helping him out in his house and, and you know, taking him around and doing, Driving you know, yeah, doing all of that for him, chauffeuring or uh, care, being a carekeeper or a caregiver. As part of your side pay, you get to learn guitar from this guy who, when you listen to his songs, it sounds like two guitarists are playing and it's just him and his beautiful fingers. Can I put a picture in your mind? Yeah. They get back from wherever they are that day. They're hanging around the house. And they break out the guitars. No, T-Bone, you got to do it this way. And he shows them the way, and they go back and forth playing into the night on nights that no one shared but them and maybe a couple friends who'd stop by for a drink or two. That's the beauty of the blues. That's the beauty of how all this stuff came together. And T-Bone's part of a whole next generation of players who are sitting there learning everything they can, watching Jefferson, Ferry Lewis, Charlie Patton. Barbecue Bob. We've talked about him before. <laughs> I wonder if he could make good barbecue, too. Woke up this morning, Tricks me night and day. I woke up this morning. Tricks me night and day. With my hair on my pillow while my brownie used to lay. He was a Piedmont player, so I'm saying a guy from the Piedmont playing the blues named Barbecue Bob, he could probably make barbecue make your mama cry. But this is the influence of Blind Lemon Jefferson. Even though some of the recording quality wasn't the best, the songs really come through. His song Matchbox Blues has been recorded by a bunch of people and also is now in the Songwriters and Blues Hall of Fame. Even now, younger bands record Black Snake Moan as a test of their own abilities to play the real shit. Albert King recorded Matchbox Blues in 83, and then again in 1999, a version was released that he recorded with Stevie Ray Vaughan. You're talking about that whole Texas guitar and blues three, brother. Oh, yeah, and it runs deep. And just so you don't think it only influenced the electric blues, remember that Bob Dylan played See That My Grave Was Kept Clean on his debut album. The irony is that for a long time, Blind Lemon's grave wasn't kept clean. After dying from what's attributed to acute 
myocarditis. What's that? Heart attack, right? Yeah. Somebody said that he was poisoned. Somebody else said he, he got all discombobulated in a snowstorm for a blind person. Some things can be more uh, stressful than for other people because you get caught off in something. You're in unfamiliar territory. All kind of challenges that people face. I don't know. But whatever it is, it's part of the legend. Blind Lemon Jefferson. Did you ever hear them church bells tone? Have you ever heard them church bells tone? Did you ever hear them church bells tone? Means another poor boy is dead and gone. And the thing about his grave, he was initially buried at what is called Wortham Negro Cemetery, later called Wortham Black Cemetery in Wortham Freestone County, Texas. And his grave was unmarked until 1967 when they got a Texas historical marker erected in the general area of his plot, the precise location of which is still unknown. Now, by 96, the cemetery and the marker were both in bad shape, and a new granite headstone was erected in 1997. The inscription reads, Lord, it's one kind of favor I'll ask of you. See that my grave is kept clean. A few years later, they changed the name of that cemetery to Blind Lemon Memorial Cemetery. And yes, his gravesite is kept clean. They have volunteers. You know, it's pretty common to be acknowledged by people who you influenced if you're somebody like Blind Lemon Jefferson, like T-Bone Walker. But when you're contemporary, like Bessie Smith and Dick Spiderbeck, Louis Armstrong, people like that start calling you a goat. That's pretty heavy stuff, right? Oh, big time. And that's part of the legacy of Blind Lemon Jefferson. I got a funny story for you. Let's hear it. Let's call it the Jefferson Airplane Connection, okay? All righty. There are sources that say the Jefferson in the name of the rock group Jefferson Airplane is in reference directly to Blind Lemon Jefferson. And here it is. You know, Yorma Kalkinen, founding member, blues guitarist, also with Hot Tuna and all that, right? His nickname that he was given was Blind Lemon Jefferson Airplane by a friend. Now, you know they were stoned when he got that nickname. That's wild. That's when they suggested they use the last two words as the name of the band, dude. <laughs> They wanted a name that uh, didn't make sense, too, so they got exactly what they wanted. And guess what? They paid tribute in song by covering me and my show for blues on their debut album, The Jefferson Airplane Takes Off. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is your Jefferson Airplane Connection. Excellent. In digging into Blind Lemon Jefferson, I listened to quite a few songs multiple times. and Yeah, different versions because he recorded yep. them all like two or three times. He did. And like the Matchbox Blues alternate take number three, I think I like the best out of the Matchbox Blues takes because it really showed his guitar skills. Up on the radio. 
sort of a, a ragtime boogie undertone to his blues right. groove and in that take you could feel it another song that i thought was wild was the bootin me bout and it sounds like you know two guitarists at times lemon worried blues sounds like he's playing two guitars at once i'm gonna tell you why And it just really, really highlighted his skills. Oh, the Lowdown Mojo Blues. Uh, listen to that one as well, because he's really playing this almost uh, stabby style of picking. I got a telephone, Joe, and she won't let me. Even though at times the quality of the recording isn't very good, you can still hear mm -hmm. the quality of his playing. Something that both of our subjects on this episode of Profiles in the Blues have in common is their ability to write songs about life. Things are happening. Here's a song about it. I got in trouble. Here's the real story, right? Yeah. I ran into a black snake. Here's the mom. Hmm. Could it be code for something? There's a million blues. A little sadness about everything. Singing about, you know, life. Singing about the job. And sometimes just singing about nothing. So much great music from these two artists that laid a foundation that would influence generations even now even some of them who don't realize it. One of the many aspects I find very fascinating about these early blues musicians is that many of them were not very formally educated. They still had the ability to use the words to create these incredible images and and tell these beautiful stories that we have been conditioned to believe that you have to be educated to tell. You can hear their life story in their songs and they paint those images very clearly. One of the first things we always say whenever we embark upon one of our journeys is if we got anything wrong or if we left anything out, be sure to let us know, okay? And there's a lot of ways that you can do that. I would suggest that you could email us at imbalancehistory at gmail.com. We see that more quickly. But there are a ton of ways that you can reach out and plug in. On this episode, Profiles in the Blues on the Imbalance History, 
uh, wrapping up about Blind Lemon Jefferson and the great Memphis Mini. Marcus, I don't know about you, man. My brain was exploding with all kinds of things I didn't know or didn't remember. Like when I was watching the Red Fox show as a kid and he did this whole blind mellow jelly thing on Sanford and Son, I'd forgotten about that. And other things that just came jumping back into my brain as we celebrated and learned about this music that we all love. I forgot about that Red Fox skit and really enjoyed being able to go to YouTube and see that skit again. On the Yubatuba. <laughs> Back to getting in the uh, groove on information. Feel free to reach out to us anytime on the internet on our website, imbalancehistory.com. There's a way to click in and contact us there. You can find all the episodes there or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. And we're never, according to Marcus, ever going on, I believe I agree with him, TikTok. No okay. way. There you go. <laughs> this is Profiles in the Blues about Memphis Mini and Blind Lemon Jefferson. So much fun. Thanks to our sponsors and thanks to you for tuning into the podcast. And until the next time that we get together in the Dark Duck Media Studios to talk about something fun and interesting about the music that we all love. Signing off, I'm Ray Coob. I'm Marcus Goldman. And this is the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.